pain is a lot more of an acute kind of presentation of stress. It's something you can really feel and know is there. Where stress, you know, I've noticed for a lot of people, when I first interview them, I'll say, hey, you know, what's your level of stress like? And I can see the person has a high level of stress, but they'll tell me, I don't really feel any stress. But their, their presentation is showing me different. The way they're acting, the way they're moving. Um, so that would tell me that this person has been under stress probably as long as they've been cognizant. But because they're feeling pain at this point, they're much more aware of something going on in their body, but they don't really know why. And they really don't know how to... Um, how to uh, associate that with stress because they don't feel stress even though if you were to take their blood pressure and just look at how they're you know what they're doing moving talking etc you'd say yeah this person is suffering a high level of anxiety hi my name is Stuart Alsop and this is my podcast crazy wisdom where I interview creative people about how they work with and manage the stress that is inherent in creative work what I've realized over the past 10 years of my research is that anybody who is creating something of value that is significantly different from what has come before is considered crazy. So what I do in this podcast is I interview all types of crazy people and I let you decide uh, who is gonna be a genius and who is just crazy. Uh, and I'm not putting any value judgments on what crazy means. It's also a very relative topic that depends on the person talking. Uh, most of us have a fear, an ingrained fear of going crazy. Uh, so what I'm saying is basically grab onto that fear, realize that it's there, and just go with it because the problems we're going to be facing over the next 20 years require crazy people in order to solve them. Today I interviewed Eric Goll, the founder and creator of Manual Ligament Therapy, a new type of body work that uh, specializes in applying light pressure to the ligaments to induce a parasympathetic or rest and digest nervous system response. So basically get someone really, really relaxed really quickly. Uh, for those of you who don't know, I've been dealing with chronic pain for many years, and I met Eric when I was living in Guadalajara just a couple months ago, and he showed me this body work and pra practiced it on me, and it was the one of the most effective things that I've found in my life for reversing this chronic pain that I've been dealing with a long time. Uh, so I was really interested to sit down with Eric for, for 45 minutes and get his wisdom on the connection between stress and creativity and also the difference between stress and pain. Uh, Eric does a lot of work helping uh, people with chronic pain all over the United States, which is a huge epidemic and which is causing a uh, main cause in the opioid um, crisis all over the United States right now. And that's the beauty of manual uh, therapies such as body work is that they can offer a alternative to drug uh, drugs for pain. Uh, very effective in uh, opportunities to treat pain without any drugs, without any opioids or anything like that. Uh, Eric has a lot of wisdom and I really hope you find value in this in this episode. If you do, please find us on iTunes and subscribe uh, by searching for Crazy Wisdom and hitting the subscribe button. Welcome to the show, Crazy Wisdom. Uh, my guest here is Art Gold. Uh, can you introduce yourself? Hey guys, this is uh, Arik Gold. We're down here in Guadalajara, Mexico, uh, where I have my clinic and where I live. And I guess you could say I do um, integrated rehabilitation, and I've been doing that for close to 20 years now. And I used to live in Seattle up until about six years ago when I moved here to Guadalajara. And what is the difference between integrative rehabilitation and physical therapy? The, the biggest difference is in physical therapy, there tends to be a lot more use of modalities that uh, have an on-off switch, mm. ultrasound, laser, shockwave therapy, things like that. There's some manual work done, but um, in physical therapy, there's more of a focus on, on devices mm. used to do whatever it is, break up tissue, reduce pain, etc. Uh, more of what I do is based on, on manual things as well as movement therapies and education of the patients. Um, education is a huge part of it. Um, I used to use laser quite a bit and I liked it okay, but I've moved away from that in the last four years and I've started using some very, um, very high quality vibrational tools that are great for breaking up scar tissue and relaxing tissues. I think that mm -hmm. compared to other conventional modalities like ultrasound and e-stem, um, the modern day vibrational tools have a much higher you know, rate of efficacy. Uh -huh. you know, 
they're much more effective. Huh. And how? What is um, what is your view on stress? What do you see as as a, as what is stress to most people, or what is stress to you? I think most people don't really. They hear the word stress and they and they think they get it because it's such a commonly used phrase, and they they put the the whole concept of stress and the idea that oh man I've got stress because I've got kids to take care of or I got a you know I got an exam in school or I've got this big uh, work project or whatever so stress is thrown around a lot by all kinds of folks medical community and otherwise but what is often missed is what stress does to the body on very basic levels so I think in essence people have a hard time understanding what stress does besides making them frustrated or besides, you know, giving them stomach problems like ulcers or headaches or whatever. And uh, how, how did you get into this? How did you start getting into kind of helping other people deal with their, their stress? Um, you know, early in, in my career, the, the stress that I saw in my patients was mostly created by frustration. They, they were not getting the results they need from a variety of different therapies. I had my first job at a PT clinic and um, I worked side by side with PTs and OTs and massage therapy and everything like that. And the people that I saw were stressed in general because they were, they were dealing with an injury that they'd had for say six months to a year or even more and they really weren't moving very quickly in, in getting better. And they were spending a lot of time in the clinic with us and that created a lot of stress and frustration for me as well. And that's what started to push me in a different direction of, of rehab. Uh-huh. And that's really interesting because I've done so many different modalities in terms of trying to figure out my own health issues and stuff like that. And I've spent so much time and effort and all these different things and so many of them have been ineffective. Mm-hmm. How do you know what is an effective tool or how have you found... Can you explain more about your story? Because what, so I just to give some backdrop to the listeners, I've been working with Eric now for about a month, and what he's shown me is the most effective thing that I've done so far. Um, it's it's allowed me to kind of get a handhold into movement in a way that I haven't had for a really long time, maybe since I was very very young. How did you kind of discover what you're offering? To go back to my frustration with rehab in general, you know, my original schooling was as a medical massage therapist. And I was really excited by the difference that I could make. Um, but unfortunately, long-term effects really weren't there. And when I started working with PTs and OTs, I expected the long-term uh, part of it to come with their um, training and education of the patient in movements and exercise. And I didn't really see that. So what happened was I ended up looking at a different ways of, at least in the beginning, reducing contraction in, in muscles and different tissues. So I asked uh, you know, a very close chiropractor friend of mine named Dr. John Mishko up in Tacoma, up in Washington. And I said, hey man, what do you guys do for, you know, say, a really contracted back? And he showed me a technique called a Logan Basic, which was invented by Hugh Logan back in the early 20s. And Hugh Logan was one of the two godfathers of modern chiropractic, him and, him and uh, BJ Palmer. And Logan found that if you put really gentle pressure on one of the ligaments in the low back, you could get rid of a lot of the contraction in the, in the back muscles. And so my friend Dr. Mishko showed me this technique and I was blown away by how fast it worked and how easy it was. And it was such a different approach than muscle mashing, than pounding into somebody <laughs> with my elbows and, and arms and fists and everything like that. Mm-hmm. And um, I asked him, okay, so how does this how does this work? Because traditionally ligaments are seen as being kind of just really dense tissue that holds together your joints. We weren't taught anything about them having any neurological influence on the body. And uh, Dr. Mishko told me, he said, well, I don't know. He said, Hugh Logan, you know, he suspected that there was some mix of uh, muscle tissue in this ligament in the low back, and maybe that's why. And then I asked him, okay, well, you know, there's over 900 ligaments in the body. What do the rest do? And he said, why don't you go figure that out? That's what I did. That's how it started. And I ended up doing a lot of research um, and getting well connected with some very uh, high level um, PhDs in the biomechanics world. And I discovered that ligaments are incredibly sensitive um, tissues in the body. And they basically direct your nervous system to tell your 
contractile tissues or muscles what to do. So ligaments are basically the boss when it comes to how your body's going to figure out how to move and how to stabilize, etc. So once that whole egg cracked and I started seeing these extremely fast results in my patients as I was experimenting with hitting different ligaments, not just with certain muscles, but a dramatic reduction in how stressed their body was in general, like how strong their contractions were, how their posture would change, how their mental attitude would change. And that, you know, was um, about 14 years ago and that was the beginning to my journey and looking at stress in a much different way, a much more global and physical and, and functional way than it's been looked at by most of the medical community. And that's something interesting because most of what you just said, I don't think is accepted by the vast majority of the medical uh, community, even though it has been played out in research. Oh yeah, it's been around in research for over 30 years and it's been, um, it's been investigated time and time again by a myriad of PhDs and researchers. And it's published all the times in journals of body work and PT and, and everything else and also of course the orthopedic industry. Mm. Um, but the biggest problem is that even though the industry of rehab and orthopedics will say, yeah, ligaments are loaded with all these different receptors and nerve endings, and yes, they communicate a lot with the nervous system. Um, they don't know what the hell to do with that information. Mm -hmm. So what they'll tell therapists in general and doctors in general is be aware of this component, be aware of this connection in the nervous system, but they never say what to do with it. And when I created manual ligament therapy, it was the, the, the item that really joined those two worlds of, okay, being aware of this aspect of neurology, but now having something you could actually do about it in a, in a big way, in a fast way, and that was repeatable, you know, over and over again. So you're right, Stuart, it's, it's unfortunate because there's such a, a great knowledge base about our, our biomechanics and nervous system, but we tend to kind of stay in the old, old ways of, of treating those things. And I've, you know, really made a point in my career of moving away from um, looking at the body and treating it in the same ways that's been done. So much money and time gets spent on research that supposedly is progressing us and helping people, but it really just seems to take us in these little circles. And that's, that's what really frustrates me. And I see that frustration in, in my patients and colleagues constantly. Um, and when I, when I get my hands on them, they're usually at the point where they've tried everything just like you had. And are frustrated and just wondering what is going to happen. Am I going to stay this way the rest of my life, or is there hope? And you know, I've, I'm able to point them in a the direction of hope most of the time, and and that makes me happy. Mm -hmm. So there's a couple different ways I could go with that. First is a really interesting thing that the uh, about there's a rule of thumb that in the medical community it takes about 20 years for the research to go from research to actual clinical application. Yeah. Uh, so I guess in terms of that, what do you see as your most effective thing in terms of just telling your patients this or working with the medical community, community to try to uh, speed that process up or is there anything you can do to speed it up? I got frustrated with that whole thing. Um, you know, since I developed manual ligament therapy and started to do these things, um, I got the attention of a lot of very big players in the world of rehab and, and orthopedic surgery. And I did a lot of conferences, taught a lot of classes, and I have a, a group that teaches these classes still. But it seems to be a really slow moving boulder. There's a lot of techniques and modalities out there that seem to appear and then they get super famous and, the, and they, then they get to the top of the heap and um, people pay a lot of money to receive and to learn these therapies. And it's basically the same stuff just regurgitated over and over like uh -huh. it's been for the last century. In different formats. In different formats and with different names and, and whatever. Mm -hmm. So I got sick of fighting that game and I decided to focus on educating the recipients, you know, the, the people who are receiving these therapies, the people who are truly suffering and to start teaching, <clears throat> teaching them more about how their body works and the realities of what pain means and how it's created and, and if surgery is necessary and if there's hope for recovery and all these things. I decided just to take it directly to the people. So my focus now is doing conferences and, you know, for small groups and large groups, uh, just to explain, here's what's happening to your body. Don't be afraid of this stuff. Don't believe everything you hear and read. And let's try to 
get back to the basics and fundamentals of what it is to be a human being and have stress and pain and stop looking at everything under a microscope like the, like the medical world has been doing for the last hundred years, trying to figure out um, you know, what molecule is creating what effect in the body when you need to back up quite a bit and look at our life in, in general and see why are we suffering so much stress these days and why is it having such a big impact in lots of different um, worlds from drug addiction to, to um, the elderly not receiving good care, you know, dying sooner just because they suffer a bad surgery or a fall and their rehabilitation or procedures after that really just kind of rush them to the deathbed faster. Mm. Mm. And that is not necessary. Mm. Not at all. And what is the difference between stress and pain? You know, if you break it down physiologically, um, they both create the same thing. They're in the same family. Stress and pain both create elevated blood pressure. They, you know, increase your endorphins and your dopamine output. You know, all kinds of things change systemically. Pain is a lot more of an acute kind of presentation of stress. It's something you can really feel and know is there. Where stress, you know, I've noticed for a lot of people, when I first interview them, I'll say, hey, you know, what's your level of stress like? And I can see the person has a high level of stress, but they'll tell me, I don't really feel any stress. Mm. But their, their presentation yeah. is showing me different, the way they're acting, the way they're moving. Um, so that would tell me that this person has been under stress probably as long as they've been cognizant, but because they're feeling pain at this point, mm. they're much more aware of something going on in their body, but they don't really know why. And they really don't know how to, um, how to uh, associate that with stress because they don't feel stress. Even though if you were to take their blood pressure and just look at the, how they're, you know, what they're doing, moving, talking, etc., you'd say, yeah, this person is suffering a high level of anxiety. Mm. Uh, and uh, so we talked a little bit about before we started about uh, essentially uh, a lot of people use exercise as a way to reduce stress, mm -hmm. but a lot of times that ends up in a weird place because <laughs> yeah. most people are exercising and causing themselves stress. Yeah. When I do, when I lecture to people or whether it's a group or just an individual patient, the, there's a lot of focus, especially um, if the person is active, if they like to do sports and exercise, there's a lot of focus in that conversation on, okay, what exercises are you doing and why are you doing, how often are you doing them? And the biggest response I get is because the person wants to reduce stress, they want to look better, they want to feel better, usually in their you know, 30s and 40s and 50s. And they're at that point in life where they're not feeling as spry and as fresh as they did when they're in their 20s and teens. Uh, and they're trying to play catch up because they realize they've kind of been beating their body up for a while, working too hard, raising kids, whatever. So they end up going to classes, they look at stuff online, and unfortunately, most of the exercises that we do these days, even the tried and true, like sit-ups and push-ups and squats, and then all the new stuff like uh, CrossFit and you know the insanity workouts and all these things, those, those exercises are being approached as a tool to, to better yourself or you know, to, to feel better about yourself, to reduce your stress, to get stronger, to look better in a, in a skirt, whatever it is. But the actuality is that just the mental approach to doing exercise, which is usually stress-based and, and based on low self-esteem, that approach is creating stress. And then when you get into this exercise program, five days a week of flipping tractor tires and doing 100 burpees or you know, doing an insanity workout for 30, 40 minutes until you puke, those things are creating a higher level of stress because now you're physically stressing the body on a, on a, on a, you know, on a tissue level also. And that's creating inflammation and scars in the body, it's creating more restrictions in the body, and you're really compounding the original stress that you had in your life. Mm -hmm. And what ends up happening is somebody will experience a nice little endorphin rush after a workout and go, wow, that was great, I just de-stressed, I feel floaty, I feel awesome. And uh -huh. what they don't realize is that the reason they feel like that is because their body just suffered trauma mm -hmm. from basically getting its own butt kicked for half an hour on a treadmill or, or what have you. And it suffered micro trauma, which yeah, is tiny endorphins. Endorphins, yeah, to cover up the damage to the tissues. Mm. So the person thinks, well, this is great, but then sooner or later, usually sooner, they start to suffer things like knee pain or back pain, 
and then they can't exercise and then they freak out because they think crap the only way I can relax is now taken away from me because I can't do it because I got pain I can't run you know 10 kilometers you know every day anymore so you know stress begets more stress and without proper education without a realistic idea of what exercise is and how it relates to stress the person just kind of continues in the same little circle mm. and so there's two ways that I can take this and I want to leave that up to you one is that circle leads a lot of people to do imaging, which then allows them to see what the problem is. I'd say that with Oh, you mean like MRIs and x-rays and stuff like that? Which show that they have herniated discs. Sure. If you take anybody off the street, they're going to have herniated discs. Uh, yeah. And that those two things aren't correlated with pain. Right. Um, and well, what's the other direction you want to take it to? Because these are depending on uh, yeah, and what then, your idea is. And then the other thing is, is something you told me, which I had heard about before, uh, but I didn't really become clear until you started working on me, is basically the things that are going on in my nervous system have been present since birth. Yeah. Uh, so so I, yeah. It's, let's tackle that one first. Because it's kind of let's get to you know the chicken before yeah. the egg or vice versa. So when when we're a fetus, it doesn't take long for our nervous system to get to the point where when our nervous system senses any kind of some kind of trauma, some kind of irritation, whether it's a loud noise outside of the mother, or the mother gets frustrated with something, or she goes to a heavy or um, heavy situation where her endorphins and dopamine is going crazy. The fetus, the, you know, the body responds by contracting into a little ball, hence the fetus position or the fetal position. That's just meant to protect our, our internal organs and make us a smaller target. It's a very old um, reptilian response that we have. It's, um, it's deeply connected into, um, into how our, our body just functions on a basic level with movement, etc. So survival mode. And that continues on the rest of our life. Every time something irritates us, no matter what it is, our body tends to want to contract forward into a little ball. And that is done mostly by the bigger muscles in the front of body, in the front of your body, like your abs and your pectorals and your quadriceps, all the flexors of your body. So we go into what I call armadillo mode, we curl up. And um, yeah, that starts before we're even born. So a lot of the, the stresses and traumas that we have in our life appear before we even come out of the womb. So somebody can say, you know, my, my life has been pretty good. I don't know why I have fibromyalgia. I don't know why I have this anxiety problem, these stomach problems. I've been fine. Mm -hmm. But say if you talk to that person's mother and said, well, how was your pregnancy? Oh, I was bedridden for three months and I had all kinds of different things and you know, the baby was breached and, or you know, my sister came to visit from out of town and she was just an emotional wreck and she was constantly, you know, running around and yelling and all this stuff. A lot of these things are imprinted early on in life. And unfortunately, the more sensitive the, or artistic the person is, which is something I know you'll want to talk about soon, um, that leads to a stronger stress response. But that's something we can mm. talk about when you're ready. Yeah, well, let's, let's get into that. So uh, sensitivity, a lot of people mm -hmm. who use the word sensitivity implies kind of a whole bunch of concepts all sure. mixed into one. Sure. Uh, one of which is kind of like understanding or being able to understand things around you. The other which is the nervous system itself is highly tuned to its surroundings and that it is actually just more sensitive at a physiological level. And mm -hmm. then there's also this other thing which I've been discovering about trauma and sensitivity yeah. and stress and sensitivity is that we become more sensitive if we've experienced trauma. Yeah, and that happens mostly as well as physiologically. Um, the more intelligent you are, the more artistic you are, the more creative, uh, the more of a type A you are, the more you're going to to run in the little stress circles. And like my cousin calls it the worry rut, where you walk back and forth in the same <laughs> strip of carpet thinking about things. And that's because when you're intelligent and creative, you tend to be hyper-analytical and you will regurgitate, especially negative um, situations in your life, pick them apart and relive them over and over again. And with that, the physiological response is to create more contraction of the body, more of a protective response, which we call the sympathetic response, the fight or flight response. And it turns into something that is self-inflicted just because we tend to be hyper-analytical. So that is something that um, people can be taught to have a better control of as far as keeping them out of that, that, that cycle of analyzing, reanalyzing, living and reliving, you know, bad instances in our life. Mm -hmm. um, but 
to speak of the physiological response, um, you know, when we have pain in our body, if, for instance, if you have a, you know, pain in your knee, it's very common for your body to start growing nerve endings and what we call receptors in areas that previously didn't have them. Mm. Just because once our mental focus gets on a part, of, a part of our body that is causing us problems or we think is causing us problems, our mental focus will actually create a response in the body where we will grow more receptors to pain. Mm. It'll become more physically sensitive. Mm. You know? Mm. That's a that's a yeah. <laughs> very interesting thing. Uh-huh. They've repeated that a lot of times in research, huh. and it happens. And that goes into another interesting thing, which is kind of correlated, but maybe not. The, mm-hmm. You've done a lot of work with chronic pain, and you've yeah. worked in the the United States with people in this opioid uh, addiction kind of crisis. Sure. And opiates themselves also do a similar thing, right? They become oh, yeah. more sensitive to pain once you start taking opiates. Yeah. Um, you know, opioids are never meant to be a long-term fix. They were meant originally for people in their last days of life. And, or, you know, suffering a gunshot or, you know, some kind of horrific accident. Huge injury. Yeah. yeah. And, it's, and over the last 20 years or so, it's turned into a long-term fix, which is we are now finally realizing has become a massive epidemic. Opioids have been shown that over long-term use, which can be as little as just a few months, release certain proteins in the body that create more nerve inflammation. So a lot of patients I've talked to who are on opioids get to a point where they say, I don't know what's really the problem is at this point. Is it the opioids or is it the, you know, whatever condition I have, whatever chronic pain, you know, condition. But all they know is that they go off the opioids the detox and they suffer a huge amount of pain they get diarrhea they throw up all the unpleasantries of it and they decide you know what it's better to go back on them and they do so when it comes to chronic pain situations especially severe chronic pain situations where people are on the verge of committing suicide because they hurt so bad they get stuck in a really bad place of saying okay i'm drugged out i'm like a zombie but what's worse, being like that or having pain? And there's some people who still have the pain. The pain is no longer controlled by the opioids because they're on a high, such a high dose that they can't go any higher. So now they're a zombie, they're in pain, and it's a living hell. They don't know which way to go. Mm. And so you've worked with these populations in the midst of these kind of like, at the end of this kind of feedback loop, negative feedback mm-hmm. loop, that it's taking it all, all the way to the end to, to really yeah. deep stuff, difficult stuff like suicide and things like that. How do you yourself deal with that level of stress um, when you're working with these clients? You know, this that is a, a, a whole idea of being a control freak like myself mm. and wanting to help as many people as I can. Mm. I got to a point where I just had to realize that I can offer everything to the patient. I can do what I do the best. I can talk to them as best I can. But in the end, it's for them to receive or not receive it in whatever capacity they can or cannot. And I had a good friend of mine, Dr. Forbes. Um, He does a very effective uh, type of um, counseling called peer-to-peer counseling that deals specifically with trauma. And he said, you know what? He goes, all you can do is do what you do best and then don't take the responsibility if it doesn't have the effect that you want. He said, who knows? Weeks, years, decades down the road, something that you did could completely change that patient. But just because you feel like you failed them doesn't mean that you failed them. So once I got that in my head that all I could do was my best and from there it was up to nature and God and and the person to take it the rest of the way, it released a lot of the stress for me. Mm. So, cause you know, when, when I suffer stress as well as anybody else, I have the same symptoms. Mm-hmm. My body hurts, my stomach gets bad, I get headaches, etc. And that was part of me learning how to deal with patients who are suffering a lot of these stress-based syndromes mm-hmm. is my experimentations on my own body and my own brain in figuring out the best ways to make myself comfortable and productive and, and happy in life those those methods that I created for myself, I use a lot with my own patients. And, you know, we, we always think, you know, the, well, the best, um, 
the best chef is going to be fat. <laughs> you know, the, the best psychologist has had a, had a ton of trauma in their life. You know, the best doctor has been injured. The best therapist has dealt with these things. And that's, that's true. That is true. But um, how you deal with those things on your own level is, makes, I think, makes a huge difference in how you're going to deal with that and the patients you're treating. Um, so one thing that I really look for now that I've gone through a lot of body work uh, and a lot of other, other modalities is that I look for the person that's able to combine both a really strong foundation in evidence, but mm -hmm. at the same time a really strong foundation in human uh, humanity, uh, some call it spirituality, sure. uh, things like that. Um, and you have a very high level of both of these. And we haven't actually talked about spirituality. We, don't, mm -hmm. we haven't talked about that in our, in our sessions at all. Um, what, what do you, uh, and I don't, I don't have the best question here, what is your kind of belief on this thing? What is your opinion? How much, how can you find a balance between these two things that many people find contrary to each other? What, well, I guess an example I could put out there is when somebody has a high level of chronic pain, fibromyalgia, um, complex regional pain syndrome, which is also known as a suicide disease. These are all in the same family. Mm -hmm. And it gets to the point where the person questions their spirituality, if mm -hmm. they had it to begin with, because they start to wonder why are they being punished? Why are they suffering this kind of thing? I mean, I've, I've had patients who swear to God they must be possessed or you know, some alien put a probe in them and gave them some chip that creates pain because they start to really wonder what is their existence supposed to be about mm -hmm. if all they're getting is just suffering and suffering. I can't answer that question. Um, my approach though is, at least with these folks, is that there is hope. You're not stuck with this just because you've had 10 specialists tell you that you are stuck with it and all you can do is try to mitigate it with drugs and injections and spinal implants and whatnot. It doesn't mean that that is the end all be all and that you can get past this and it's completely possible. I at least try in that manner to give them... Um, put their focus in a different way as opposed to you know them thinking what did I do, why do I deserve this, what's happening to give them a little bit more of a sensible way of looking at things as far as this is your body telling you it needs help pain is your body's way of seeing and saying there's, a, there's an imbalance mm -hmm. um, psychosomatically, emotionally, physically or in whatever way it is not punishment mm -hmm. it is not punishment but at the same time Stuart my experience with a lot of um, these types of patients has shown me that there is a point where a lot of people get very addicted to having pain, very addicted to, to feeling um, the, the adrenaline rush of pain, the, the rush of, of, of feeling negative emotions and, and the attention that they end up getting. You know, it's being addicted to, to pain is just as strong as being addicted to anything else. It ch creates a chemical change in the brain mm -hmm. and it takes a detoxification from this addiction to negative feelings emotionally, physically to get the person on the other side of it. We can go on and on about this stuff forever. I mean, it's a whole nother podcast. Yeah. It is really deeply rooted in, in our society in the States. Um, more than any other country in the world, uh -huh. it really is. There's something, there's something, you know, fishy <laughs> going on there. Yeah. But that's another uh -huh. podcast, man. <laughs> okay, and well, so so uh, I will take in two options. Uh, so yoga, uh, I'm a yoga teacher. I've been studying yoga now for 14 years. I've had to give up what modern postural yoga is recently because yeah. it has done damage to my body. Um, and you have some thoughts and uh, beliefs on, on yoga. Sure. Can you talk more about them in, in terms of stress and creativity and what kind? You know? um, it'll, you know, what I'm going to say is going to probably, you know, piss off some, some yogi masters as well as uh, students of it who feel like yoga has done amazing things for them, which I'm sure in its own way it has. The reality is, though, that Yoga, as is practiced now, the vast majority of the yoga modalities and, and styles is not helpful for the modern human being and what we do all day. And for the average person, does not create a real outlet of stress or a real um, tool in order to get stronger and more flexible. First, I'm going to get into yoga as applies to modern humans. 
we spend a lot of our day sitting curled up, stressed out, basically in armadillo mode, head forward, body crunched in. And I did, you know, many years of yoga. I did Bikram, I did um, Samashtanga, and a lot of the postures are based on stretching the back of the body. And in fact, way out of, way out of, um, what's the word I'm searching for here? Well, there's way too much stretching for the back of the body as compared to the front, okay? The front of the body is what needs stretching. The front of the body is what creates most of the, the pain in the back of our body. So even though you'll feel a symptom like having tight hamstrings or low back pain, those are not the areas that you need to focus on stretching. It's the front of your body that's creating the stress in the back. And unfortunately, yoga does not really address that very much. So the human being needs to be uncurled. Yoga tends to put us in a curled position over and over and over again. Um, so it's a, it's a disproportionate kind of recipe that yoga introduces to us. Mm -hmm. And you know, realistically, in, in India, people don't work at a desk nine hours a day and then go take a yoga class in the evening. It's not like that. They don't do recreational yoga. Mm -hmm. And in the Western culture, we do that. So you're taking somebody who's been sitting on a desk all day, stressed out, curled up like an armadillo, and they go into a yoga class, they get very little time to prepare themselves, and next thing you know, they're being put through a lot of different um, postures that are actually creating more stress to them. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons that it creates more stress, you know, when you're holding a posture and you start to shake, it's called the stretch reflex. Your, your connective tissues, your contractile tissues are set so that if you stretch them for more than five seconds, they begin to contract as a protective measure. So when you're holding a posture like a warrior pose or something that's more difficult, and say in Bikram, you're in a posture for 60 to 90 seconds, or even 30 seconds, you're shaking because your body is trying to contract to protect itself. So just the mere fact that in yoga, a lot of the, the stretching and the postures are held in what we call static positions is going against how our, our body really moves. Our bodies move dynamically. So just in general, the, the idea of yoga being static positions, there needs to be a bigger focus on creating dynamic yoga positions where the positions are gotten into step by step instead of just going into position and being told to hold it while your body shakes and you start to stress out and hold your breath. I mean, at that point, you've created more stress. You've yeah. gone against what you're trying to achieve. In extreme ranges of motion too, because most yoga, a lot of yoga is these kind of wild, crazy, sure. huge extreme ranges of motion. Exactly. Yeah. And, and the thing is that when the front of your body is really tight, the whole thing is, you know, our bodies move like a bubble, more or less. We don't move like robots. We all know that, okay? But the whole thing is that if you have a very tight center in your body, like your stomach, for instance, is pulling everything in, then your extremities, like your arms and hands and your neck, don't work too well. So if you get to a posture and you're trying to stretch your fingers to the sky while you're rotating your head and you've got your hamstring all stretched out and your torso's twisted, if you're tight in the middle of your body, that's a very difficult position to hold. So the preparation to get the body ready for those types of postures is not being done in yoga. And, that, and what I mean by that is there needs to be a lot of stretching of the abdomen, a lot of stretching of the chest and the quadriceps to allow the rest of the, movie, uh, the body to start moving around um, the center of the body. Um, and, and dynamic, when you say dynamic, there is dynamic yoga and that mm -hmm. is vinyasa yoga, yep. but that is an on all fours, on the, on most of it's in a all fours position or yep. a downward dog, all surrounded around the downward dog, which isn't necessarily that bad, but, but there's a lot less standing, which if you're a everyday human being, you're going to be doing more <laughs> standing or walking right. more functional things. In, in general, I, I, I think that it's, it's better for us to, to do um, exercising and, and other activities standing. Mm -hmm. when, you, when you get down on the ground, your body responds differently to gravity. Your, all your receptors and your tissues respond differently to, to gravity at that point. And you're not really applying, you're not realistically applying what you're doing on the floor to how you'd be when you're standing up. You're, you're kind of missing the boat on that whole thing. Um, I also have a problem with the overuse of the reformer in Pilates. A lot of things are done laying down and Pilates has some really great concepts about how to use a pelvis, etc. But the fact of it is that 
our mechanoreceptors in our body are, are more for when we're standing upright and moving, not laying down and moving. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So interesting. When's the last time you walked laying down? When's the last time you ran a marathon laying down? Uh-huh. Right? Huh. That's so interesting. There's so many exercises and there's so many regimes and it's all, uh, and they're all sold to us as going to solve all these different problems. Sure. So few of them are actually like doing anything of being effective. Yeah, I can tell you right now, the biggest thing for people to stop doing is crunches. Mm-hmm. You know, crunches, it creates, um, it creates more contracture in the, in the abdominal muscles, it flexes our body forward, and that is exactly what we do when we're under stress. Mm-hmm. That is how we spend a lot of day when we're sitting. Mm-hmm. And then you go to the gym and you crank out, you know, 50, 50 to 100 crunches or more even. All you're doing is you're reinforcing um, your armadillo mode. And that creates a lot of stress on the back of the body, including your, your head and your jaw and your neck and all that stuff. So my plea to people is don't do crunches. There's much better ways of working your abdomen. And in reality, you know, the primary function of your, of your abdominals, your rectus abdominis, is not a crunch. That muscle actually compresses and lifts up your torso. It goes in the opposite direction. That's, how, that's, one, of the, that's one of the ways that we create a good posture when you use that muscle correctly, not by contracting and flexing forward. Um, and so we've been talking a lot about stress and the kind of negative aspects of all this different stuff. Uh, can we, we want to move into more kind of aspect on focusing on creativity and it's mm-hmm. positive and like once you figure out all this stuff and once you kind of get your body to work into a more natural fluid sure. state, what can you expect? When you're creative, whether you're a musician or artist, you know, we spend a lot of time in the same position, <laughs> painting, drawing, writing music, playing instruments, whatever it is. And, you know, I've worked with a lot of very high-end musicians as well as athletes. And for me, helping musicians especially gives me a lot of gratification because music touches me a lot. It, it makes me happy. And I know that musicians, they love the fact that what they're doing makes them happy and makes other people happy. The problem is that playing music and writing music, rehearsing music, creates a lot of contracture in the body and it's a lot of repetitive motion, creates a lot of pain, and guess what? That ends up inhibiting our creative process. When you're in pain, when your body's stressed, um, your nervous system is stressed, all it really wants to do is survive at that point. Being creative requires more and more energy at that point. Mm. And for a lot of people, they tend to hit a wall. I've seen changing somebody's posture and movement patterns and their flexibility increase creativity. I've, I've, seen, I've seen people get past writer's blocks, you know, changing the way their body is functioning. Um, so, you know, one of my goals is, as the, as the years go on here, to, to spend more time working with artists and musicians to help unravel their body to give them more creative flow just because it won't be distracted by pain and by stress. So just like an athlete or anybody else, an artist or a musician, they need to have a complementary system of stretching and working with their body to keep it physically happy, which contributes a ton to emotional happiness. Mm-hmm. And that's a huge part that most people don't get. And it's, it might, people might get it intellectually, but we're, we're trained in the U.S. and a lot in Western Europe to think of there's a divide between our brain and our body sure. and there is this separation which knows actual functional se- separation between our brains and our bodies. Absolutely so not. Yeah. yeah. So uh, that's one of the hardest things that I've had to learn for myself and then also to share with others is that mm-hmm. this doesn't exist. There is no separation between your brain and your physical body. It, yeah. it just doesn't exist. No, you're right. Not at all. I mean, your your brain stem and every other part of your brain is what moves your body and <laughs> it makes it do a different thing. So, you know, it drives me nuts when, when a allopathic doctor will not understand that their patient who has fibromyalgia, for instance, is just suffering physical symptoms and they need to mitigate the physical symptoms by giving them painkillers and telling them to go swim twice a week, completely missing the boat that their pain that they're suffering is based on mental trauma that was suffered you know, maybe before they're even born mm-hmm. or with trauma after that. And they cannot, you know, put it this way. Somebody who suffers fibromyalgia, the first stop is typically with their general practitioner. They tell the doctor, I can't sleep well, my stomach hurts, I have inflammation, it's getting worse, I got pain in my knees, back, whatever. Their general 
physician refers them on to a rheumatologist. The rheumatologist tells them, oh, I think you have fibromyalgia. Uh, take these meds, maybe see a dietitian, change your diet, and go see a PT for some exercise, pool therapy, whatever. Very rarely does that rheumatologist say, you know, so-and-so, have you ever received counseling? Have you ever gone to talk to someone about your life, your stress, etc.? They very rarely do that. Mm -hmm. People with fibromyalgia they should not be going to their GP first. Mm -hmm. If I mean, if they're educated about their condition, educated in the correct way, which I mean is not going onto WebMD and reading about the symptoms mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and being told what drugs to take, uh -huh. um, people would know that their first stop should be to seek psychological counseling, to find someone to start talking about what's happened to them and how they're feeling about things, because mm -hmm. that is what's creating their physical you know, symptoms. But we do it backwards. We, we do it backwards and the person ends up getting worse and more frustrated uh, because now they're, they're addicted to whatever painkiller. They're not getting any better. A lot of them end up losing relationships and, and their jobs because of the, you know, being disabled. And it doesn't need to be like that. It, the system is completely backwards and really um, in, with so many other types of pathologies, the system just tends to keep us in the loop. You know, buying things, buying meds, buying procedures, buying therapies um, with very minimal good outcomes. Mm -hmm. That's my rant on that. <laughs> so yeah, I think we've got about maybe five minutes left. I'd like mm -hmm. to talk just a little bit about why. So just to give you, give our listeners the backdrop. I'm here in Guadalajara. I've been here for a month, uh, and I I came here to do a lot of medical stuff and thinking, okay, I'm going to do a lot of testing and all these physical, physiological mm -hmm. tests to see whether good, I want to get healed from this pain that I've been experiencing for a really long time. Uh, and then I get a referral to a, um, a, a PT, a body worker, integrated, what did you call it? Integrative? Integrated rehab. Rehab. Okay. Yeah, sure. Uh, and I find um, Eric and he's uh, an American living here in Guadalajara. Can you talk more about what brought you to Guadalajara? Um, you know, it was, the same thing that I think a lot of Americans are suffering from right now is, you know, it was back in the late 2000s when the economy crashed and I ended up losing my house, losing my car. Um, lost a vast majority of my patients just because, you know, in my field, um, we rely on insurance billing a lot. And as people lost their jobs, they lost their insurance coverage. So the obvious choice is to feed themselves other than get therapy. And around the same time, I began coming to uh, Guadalajara to teach classes um, in body work for physical therapists and chiropractors and massage therapists. And I was invited here by a colleague of mine who was, uh, he was instructing, he was, he was one of the instructors that I had teaching manual ligament therapy um, under me. And I ended up loving it because I would show up here and I'd have a ton of patients and students and the weather was great and the food was great. And I'd have to go back to rainy Seattle and back to the crappy economy and back to a daily life of crossing my fingers, hoping that things would change. And after about uh, two, three years of coming down here every few months, I decided I'm just going to move. You know, at the time I didn't have a wife, no kids, nothing. And I just packed up my suitcase and my cat and just got the hell out of Dodge. And it was the best thing I ever could have done because it completely changed my life. It, it changed the way I, I looked at myself, the way I looked at my patients and my profession and, and um, mm. at living in general. Mm -hmm. And the culture here too, what, what about it do you like? Because I find that I, when every time I get to Mexico, I just find this kind of warmth in people yeah. and this like spark. Yeah. Which, like people are really uh, respectful, humble and uh, warm. Yeah. Um, people here when for instance, if you do a good job in helping somebody out, for instance, they got a bad back or whatever, the next week you got half their family and their friends in your clinic. Yeah. You know, in the States, you're lucky if you, if you do a good job for somebody and they tell 10 people, you're lucky if maybe one or two of those people show up. Here, it's not like that at all. Mm -hmm. Like you said, Stuart, they're really grateful for help, mm -hmm. especially when it's, it's legitimate, um, heartfelt type of help because you know people in Latin America are used to being screwed over by their government and by each other there's a very strong survivalist kind of mechanism that they have here just because they've been abused by the system for so long and when they find somebody who really is is sincere and and does a good job and makes them happy they show their their gratitude in so many ways you know and they bring you food nice bottles of tequila they invite you to be at functions with their families mm -hmm. And that is something that I didn't experience hardly at all in the United States. Mm -hmm. This is strict, just like separation. It is, yeah. 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 You know, there is this, you, you, 
you're seen as the therapist and not much more. Where down here, you can't you become a friend, you become part of the family. That's so interesting. So yeah, just to wrap up, is there one kind of thing that you've learned in the last month or one article, one book you've read that would help our listeners kind of develop a better relationship with stress and thus became more creative? I think um, it's, it's actually been about 10 years since I heard about EFT therapy, mm-hmm. emotional freedom technique. And in the last um, year, so I, this goes beyond your one month, Stuart, but you know, it's, <laughs> EFT works super good. Emotional freedom technique. You can see the videos on YouTube. It's a, it's a tapping technique. You tap different points of your body, in your head, your sternum, your hands. It has. It, you also verbalize, um, recognizing different things about your traits as a human, and, and accepting things and loving yourself. And as corny as it might sound to some people, it works really well, even for the most diehard, like you know, that stuff doesn't work type of person. It works incredible, especially for trauma and stress. Um, And I guess over the last few months here in Mexico, especially, I've been prescribing it a lot to my patients. Or in the States, uh, when I did a lot of the chronic pain treatments around the country, I would often say, hey, you should check this out, try it out. And it it works super well. So I encourage people, if you haven't, look it up. Mm -hmm. You can get all the free videos you need from YouTube. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much. And how can people find you if they want to continue the conversation? Uh, the easiest way is just go to my website. I have one here in Mexico, but I, the one in the States will serve you folks the best. Um, that's goalmethod.com. So it's my last name, which is G as in goat, O, H as in Henry, L as in llama, so goal, and method, M-E-T-H-O-D.com, all one word, goalmethod.com. Tons of um, different uh, um videos of, of, of people talking about their experiences with the modality and, and some of these were very extreme cases of pain and dysfunction as well as a lot of information about what I base my, my protocols on. Um, it's, it'd be a good resource to at least begin to, to investigate what I do and the people that have benefited quite a bit from it, thank mm. God. <laughs> and then from there has my email address, you're welcome to email me and we can get in communication. Mm. And you're thinking about doing more, uh, more kind of virtual stuff, right? Like, yeah, I want to start doing. I'm gonna, you know, I gotta get down to writing here pretty soon. I've got a lot of things I've got to put down on paper, but um, I do want to do, uh, you know, podcasting and, and blogs and, and you know more Instagram types of things. And um, I'm starting to put more time in my day for that. And now that I've met you, Stuart, I think I have a, another outlet to get people informed and help educate more people as we go on. Cool. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you, man. Yeah.